Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests as usual today. First in moments, Eric Blank will analyze last year's teacher strikes and will report on what's been going on since. And at the bottom of the hour, the environmental attorney Catherine Kamen will talk about using a community reparations approach to environmental justice. First, the teachers. Last spring, we saw a wave of strikes across the U.S. as teachers, mostly in the so-called red states, walked off the job to protest low pay and chronic underfunding of their school systems. The strikes started in West Virginia and then spread to Arizona and Oklahoma. Why and how did they happen? Were they as spontaneous as some people seem to think? Did teachers' unions help or hurt? What's been happening more recently? Here's Eric Blank, author of Red State Revolt, The Teachers' Strike Wave and Working Class Politics, just out from Verso, to explain. Blank, a former high school teacher now studying sociology at NYU, has been on the ground covering the strikes ever since they got going. Eric Blank. A lot of people, I think, looked at these strikes and saw them as semi-spontaneous, but they were anything but spontaneous, right? Yeah, that's a, a big misnomer. The organizers in West Virginia really spent months uh, building up towards their action. They were socialists. They studied past strikes, and they really made the strike possible. Uh, they weren't obviously the only people organized, but without them, it's hard to imagine it happening. So how how do they do it? Each each state was different, you know. Each locality is different. But let's let's talk first about West Virginia, which uh, kind of got the ball rolling. Yeah, West Virginia was the hardest to get off the ground because it was the first. Right, if you take a step back, a big part of the reason you don't see more strikes is that people are generally feel powerless. They they don't feel like they can take action, particularly illegal actions. So it took quite a bit of work to overcome that sense of powerlessness. And so in West Virginia. Really, the first organizing came out of a study group of DSA Education Committee in Charleston, in which Jay O'Neill and Emily Comer, who were two educators who had first kind of gotten connected through DSA after the Bernie campaign, did a study group of Jane McAlevey's No Shortcuts. And they tried to the best of their ability to implement those lessons in West Virginia. And they did, more or less, by doing a bunch of build-up actions, by trying to build real organizing as opposed to just lobbying power. And that, in turn, pushed the union after months to call a strike vote and made the strike happen. And then that that dynamic had to take place again because the rank and file, as some people might remember, had to continue the strike despite the attempts by the union leadership halfway through to end it. And so, again, the rank and file organizers like Jay and Emily, but then also more broadly across the state, organized rank and file to push much further than the top union leaders wanted to go. And a lot of public sector uh, strikes have failed to build any kind of support uh, among the public uh, and uh, failed to make any connection between the quality of public services and the workers' struggle on their own behalf. How did uh, the strikers in, in these states approach that question? The ability to win a public sector strike depends, as you might imagine, in, in large part off of the support of the public. And so in all of the states, one of the reasons that the strikes were so successful was that they did a few things right. One is that they, for the most part, raised demands that went well beyond just the immediate pay or even workplace demands of the educators themselves. So in Oklahoma and Arizona, there were central demands for more funding for students. In West Virginia, the major demand was to defeat a attempt to raise healthcare costs up to double the price for all public employees. Uh, And they ended up actually winning a pay raise for all public employees, not just all public teachers. And so there was a generalized sense that teachers uh, were fighting for the working people as a whole. And then they proactively went out and reached out to parents. They prepared food ahead of time to give to students because working class students in all of these states depend on public schools, not just for schooling, but for lunch and breakfast often. And so teachers went out of their way to deliver, often hand deliver in the evenings, food for the next day for students. So it made it clear that it was really uh, not true what the media was saying in these cities and states, which was that teachers were somehow harming the students. And it became uh, pretty obvious to the public that it was, in fact, the opposite. And it wasn't just about the teachers, right? The cafeteria workers, the the bus drivers, uh, support staff. It was really uh, very broad, not just a craft union strike. Yeah, it's a big part of its success. The movement and the strike, particularly in West Virginia, but also in Arizona, was not just teachers because it takes a lot of different workers to make a school operate. In particular, in West Virginia, the role of bus drivers was extremely important because 
in, in the state, partly because it's geography, students really depend on the buses to get to school because of the mountainous terrain, both in the lead up to the strike and then when the strike went wildcat, it was the bus drivers who were really widely credited for making that push happen, both uh, to get it off the ground and then to continue it. You know, there's these sort of famous anecdotes that people tell about a bus driver standing up in a meeting when a lot of people were wavering and saying, even if the teachers want to go back, the buses aren't going to run. Yeah, that sentiment of moving beyond a craft union to more of a class-wide struggle is something that we haven't seen in a while, and it's very exciting. What about the level of class consciousness among the teachers before the strike, and how did the, the, the process of organizing the strike develop it? We shouldn't exaggerate the level of explicit class consciousness. It's very uneven. For some of the key organizers who consider themselves socialists, their class consciousness was very high. I think more generally, the dominant idea really was almost education-specific. Really, for most people, this was an issue of how we fight for better schools, both for educators and for the students. But that dynamic pushed up against a lot of the existing ideologies, and it pushed up against the Democratic and Republican politicians. And for the basic reason that in order to fund schools, you need to get more funds. And in all of these states, that raised the question of reversing the tax cuts on the rich and the corporations. And so in West Virginia, one of the chants that you heard a lot in the Capitol was tax our gas, tax our gas. And and similarly in Arizona and Oklahoma, there was very clearly an emerging sentiment that to fund the schools, you had to go after capital, basically. So that didn't mean necessarily people would have articulated as, you know, we're the working class against the capitalist class. But they nevertheless were moving in that direction. And it shows the potentialities, I think, for like a more robust workers movement in the United States. And what kind of reaction uh, did uh, the, the, the teachers and, and, uh, get from the administrators and politicians uh, you know, and right-wing agitators? Yeah, it depended a little state by state. For the most part, the Republicans and the top superintendents were hostile and tried to scare the educators from going on strike. So, you know, these were illegal actions. And it's a big part of the story that workers had to overcome the intimidation from these forces. Attorney generals were threatening people with losing their jobs. So, yeah, there was a lot of intimidation. That being said, once the strike started, they were so overwhelmingly popular that the Republicans had to feign support to a certain extent And their main line became, well, we'd love to give you everything you're asking for, but we just don't have the money. And they ended up conceding after uh, pretty significant pressure from the strikes. The Democrats sort of opportunistically came on board at the end to pledge their support, mostly in the hopes, I think, of using that energy of the strike wave to get elected in the midterms. These, of course, are three different states, and a lot of people uh, commenting on uh, on West Virginia in particular remarked on uh, that state's history of union militants. How did that play in the strike? How important was that, the history of uh, coal strikes in West Virginia? What's tricky, to a certain extent, this aspect has been a little bit exaggerated. When You might remember some of the initial press reports painted almost this picture of West Virginia having this unbroken continuity of labor radicalism. And it, there's, there's an aspect of truth to that, but one of the remarkable things that came across was, was how, how, how much the movement had to revive a sense of labor activism and militancy that was really dormant for decades, that there hasn't been you know, significant strike activity in West Virginia for a long time. And so it's true that for some people, there was a memory of, for instance, the 1990 teacher strike. If anything, that was more of a legacy than the coal mining uh, traditions. But particularly in the southern part of West Virginia, this is really where that romantic appeal to the traditions of coal miners and that militancy was very real. And that played an important role because it was the southern counties that first initiated the walkouts before the strike as a statewide phenomenon happened. So there were these pockets of teachers who grew up in places like Mingo, Wyoming, who really were raised out of families that could trace their lineages back to the mine wars of the early 20th century. So in that particular instance, it was definitely the case that the traditions played a role. And now the other states, Oklahoma, going way back, um, of course, has quite a a socialist radical history. Did that have any uh, ghostly influence on, on these strikes? Not really. I mean, it's interesting. I, because I study history, I was aware, and as you mentioned, Oklahoma actually had the strongest socialist party in the country in the turn of the century. 
But that history was really wiped out. There was almost no consciousness of that radical um, tradition. So it had to really be revived and it was not part of the strikes in a significant way. Some of the socialists in DSA tried to you know, bring up this history through talking about it. But in Oklahoma, like Arizona, that tradition of class consciousness and labor movement was really broken definitively. And it's only starting to reemerge right now. And then Arizona, of course, is uh, an important um, hotspot for right-wing politics in the country. It's home state of Barry Goldwater, pretty reactionary state in a lot of ways, although not entirely. What about that? Uh, how, how much did that influence uh, the course of the strike? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if you'd asked somebody in 2017 or even early 2018, what's the one state you would least expect a successful statewide strike? You know, Arizona would have been towards the top of the list, if not at the top of it, for the reasons you mentioned. You know, it's a bastion of the far right, of Goldwater, of Alec and the Koch brothers. So, you know, what they were able to accomplish was pretty remarkable. They faced in Arizona the hardest push from above. There was really very systematic red baiting. There was the most systematic smear campaigns in the media against the leaders of the Red for Ed movement. And there was also the most legal intimidation. So that offensive was definitely deeper from above, but it didn't ultimately succeed. And, and it showed actually the relative lack of roots of that type of politics in Arizona, at least when there's some sort of clear working class alternative presented. It was remarkable. You had people who had voted for Trump and, you know, to be honest, probably had a lot of backwards ideas on all sorts of things. Nevertheless, uh, engaging in a statewide strike that was very multiracial, that was consciously bilingual that was uh, oriented in large part towards winning better funds for Latino students who make up actually a majority of the student body in Arizona. So it really showed, that I think, the, the limitations of the hold of the right, at least when organizers are able to put forward a coherent and compelling alternative. I'm speaking with Eric Blank, author of Red State Revolt, just out from Verso. What about the, uh, the existing teachers unions? Um, did they help, hurt, both? The big story in some ways is that these were strikes that were initiated and led for the most part by the rank and file, famously through some statewide Facebook groups and then through various types of organizing. So the initiative really came from below, but in general, the unions eventually came on board kind of under pressure and sometimes uh, begrudgingly. But for the most part, the unions did play an important role in providing resources for the walkouts, for the strikes in legitimizing them, you know, they played a more conservative role than the ranks, but it's also, to be fair, very hard to imagine the strikes would have gone as far as they did without the infrastructure and um, resources provided by the unions. And one of the things we've also seen since the strikes is how important it is to have more systematic organization and towards rebuilding the unions, because the kind of volcanic strike activity, if it's not channeled into more lasting organization, doesn't build the type of sustained power that really a union movement can provide. Uh, the leadership in, in uh, the West Virginia Union wanted to uh, cut a deal pretty quickly, uh, and uh, the rank and file rejected that. So uh, tell us how that played out. Yeah, it's really one of the most special moments of the whole strike wave. There was this evening, basically, where the union leadership in front of thousands of assembled educators on the steps and at night in the West Virginia capital announced that they were going back to work to which the immediate response of these educators was back to the table, you work for us, we are the union. And the union leaders literally got shouted down from a mass crowd of thousands of people. And over that next day, the educators decided basically to do a wildcat strike, which is to say that they went on strike despite the opposition initially of their union leadership. And they saved the strike. There's no way the demands that were won would have been won had educators gone back at that time. And I think in part, that's part of the reason why the West Virginia strike really captured the imagination of so many um, people, in particular teachers across the country, because it just we haven't seen this type of militancy in so long. It really pointed towards some sort of potentiality and power that people just haven't experienced. And I think that's why it really caught the imagination of folks. Why was the union so quick to cut a deal? It seems that labor leaders are, are afraid of strikes, especially the legal ones. Um, is that, uh, was that what was motivating them? I mean, if you take a step back, one of the reasons why the labor movement has been 
getting really decimated for decades is that it's been almost entirely reliant on trying to lobby the Democratic Party. And that's definitely been the orientation of the labor leaders in all of these states, and not just these states, including blue states. So doing something like organizing a statewide strike was, to say the least, out of their comfort zone. And they were, generally speaking, trying to move as quickly as possible to end the strike. Yeah, so they reached a deal, what they thought was a deal, very early, uh, too early, and the ranks, you know, weren't having it. They, they had the ranks had much less trust in the goodwill of politicians, and I think their instincts were proven right. So yeah, this tension between the relative conservatism, of the union leaders, who you know, we shouldn't exaggerate, for they, they did play an important role. But yeah, had it not been for this rank and file pressure, uh, there's no way you would have had the strikes in the first place or had them succeed. What about the politics of uh, public sector strikes versus private sector strikes? Uh, as you point out towards the beginning of the book, um, a public sector strike is not disrupting uh, the machinery of profit-making so much. But on the other hand, a public sector strike, especially a, a school strike, is uh, operating within the realm of social reproduction. So what about these two kinds of strikes? and uh, What kinds of effects do they have and how can we think about them? All strikes consist of workers withholding their labor to get demands met. And they do that by creating a crisis for employers. But the leverage that they employ uh, really depends. So yeah, in the private sector, you're able to cut off profits in a way that's not the case in a public sector strike. So what a public sector strike does is by making a certain service, whether it's education or another service, not function because you don't go to work, it creates a social crisis that can be leveraged against the politicians. And that's, in fact, what happened. You know, you, it was not like the state could have just waited out the teacher strike. There was no indication that they could just have waited it out because, in fact, millions of people in these states depend on their kids being able to go to school. And so it created a ripple effect of where do you, how do you get childcare? Uh, maybe I can't go to work. And the generalized pressure that that created was enough in these states to be able to push the politicians to meet the demands of the teachers. That being said, the secret to success was that they had this mass public support. It's a double-edged sword. It's so much of the leverage depends on the public siding with you. And so one of the things that public sector strikes have not done in the past that these uh, recent ones have has been this systematic ability to orient towards uh, winning community support and then maintaining that. So one of the big challenges in the coming period is going to be how to continue keeping up that community support, because what the politicians want to do is now pit educators against other public services, other public workers by saying, look, if we give teachers a raise, we're going to have to cut social welfare and X, Y, Z. So the question of maintaining public support is really central, I would say, for any successful public sector movement. What could you say about the fact that so many strikes, so much labor militancy these days, it seems to be led by uh, uh, teachers, nurses, <laughs> and Sarah Nelson, the flight attendant, uh, women, not your traditional uh, stereotype of the, uh, the union worker. What, what does this say about the, the state of uh, the working class? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really important point. Um, as you mentioned, overwhelmingly uh, strikes in 2018, which was the highest number of strikes we've seen since 1986, um, almost half a million workers were, went on strike. Yeah, overwhelmingly female industries. Part of the reason then for the militancy is, you know, you have depressed wages and feminized positions, whether it's teaching or hotel work or nursing. There's a gender division of labor that has resulted in worse conditions. And then part of it is also these industries are also the industries that are less susceptible towards the threat of capital flight, which is one of the reasons why there's far fewer strikes in manufacturing, which traditionally more male-dominated, because people are terrified if you go on strike, your factory could move, and you don't have that same level of threat in these types of industries. So there's a couple of different confluence of factors there. And then partly, one of the reasons, again, why the strikes are so successful is that these are industries that have a deep connection with working people. So teachers were able to leverage their support of parents and, and students, the same way, same with nurses. And that is not accidental, but reflects the fact that these are in large part gendered uh, jobs in which women have been more 
pushed for decades into care work. And so I think it's really exciting now that really you have this same female working class leadership emerging in various different industries. And, you know, I think we should probably expect that dynamic to continue for the foreseeable future. I almost said the right, but uh, it's not just the right. Democrats have done this, too. There's been a demonization of teachers that's been going on for a couple of decades now. Does that have any effect on public attitudes or is it just going in in one ear and out the other? Well, I mean, I think it certainly had an effect up until very recently. The dominant discourse, at least, was that schools are failing because of bad teachers, greedy unions, the inherent inefficiencies of the public sector. And what the strikes have done is really challenge that narrative and, and change the national political narrative around public education. You know, there was more charters created under Obama than in any other administration. So, yeah, this is not a specific Republican policy. And in fact, the Democrats have often gone further. But now, under pressure of these strikes, which have changed uh, the way people perceive the roots of the crisis, the strikes have made it clear that really what's going on in schools is that they're underfunded and under-resourced. And so you have good teachers leaving the state, leaving the job because they can't survive. Uh, you don't have enough funds to provide for the needs of students. And so that the solution, therefore, is more resources, more funds, and not more privatization, which in turn actually deepens the crisis of public education. So I think the strikes have really changed that, so much so that the reflection is the same Democrats who up until very recently were uh, open charter proponents, many of them have had to backtrack and at least make nominal references to their support for public schools and even somewhat muted opposition to charters and privatization. I don't think we should take that uh, for more than it is, but the fact that they're at least forced or compelled to pretend they're on the side of the educators and the struggle against privatization, I think is indicative of a real sea change in national politics. And finally, now we're a year after these strikes. Uh, where What's the state of consciousness and organization, not just in these three states, but uh, elsewhere as well? Is it spreading or um, has it been uh, contained in time and place? Well, it's definitely spreading. The, the strikes just in 2019, most importantly, uh, we saw a mass strike in Los Angeles, overwhelmingly successful, Oakland, Denver, Los Angeles uh, really sparked, I think, a perception, which is accurate, that the strike wave is not just confined to the red states, but is in fact a really blue state phenomenon as well, and it's challenged the Democrats. And so in Las Vegas, the just yesterday, actually, the teachers union voted to authorize a strike. And there's been a rash of other one-day walkouts just in Oregon last week. So yeah, the, the movement's only continuing to spread. And there's, by all indications, going to continue in through the fall. But the challenge is how to maintain the momentum in, in some of the states that have already struck. The right wing doesn't just uh, give up after they lose. They've done big counteroffensive in places like West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma. And uh, frankly, the battle is ongoing. There's been reverses. There's been uh, some successful uh, counteractions. West Virginia had another strike this last spring. But their battle against privatization is continuing now because the Republicans are coming out a third time to try to introduce charters. So, yeah, I think the big story is that the struggle is national, but it's also, uh, unfortunately, never ending. As Eric Blank, author of Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strike Wave and Working Class Politics, just out from Verso. He's also a former high school teacher. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. That was some of Free Society from Ellen Aline's brand new album, Alientronic. 
Next, reparations and environmental justice. The conflict over reparations for slavery is intense, but it often inhabits a highly abstract level of discourse. The details, how to make reparation and to whom, are elusive. Here's one way to concretize them. Community-based reparations for environmental injuries that occurred precisely because a chemical plant or incinerator or toxic waste dump was located in a region where the residents are poor and more often than not black. That locational decision isn't literally the result of slavery, but slavery, Jim Crow, and various forms of legal and informal segregation have a lot to do with why a community was chosen. Catherine Kamen is a lawyer with Earth Justice, based in Miami, and the author of an article in the Seattle Law Review on the topic of community-based reparations. She wishes to emphasize that she's speaking in her own capacity as an attorney and co-founder of the Environmental Justice Clinic at the University of Miami Law School, and not on behalf of Earth Justice. Catherine Kamen. I want to start with a general history of the environmental justice movement, uh, which uh, you know this is part of. Where did it come about? Come from, and uh, how has it developed over the last couple of decades? Environmental justice has really the movement itself has has existed for I think a lot longer than people like to give it credit uh, for, but. It's commonly recognized that it began kind of in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, and specifically with a um, uh, an issue in Warren County, North Carolina, where there was a proposed hazardous incinerator uh, that was going to be in this uh, low-income African-American community when the state, you know, could have put it anywhere else, basically. And the community itself really organized, really rallied and protested against this incinerator. It was going to be burning PCBs and other sorts of hazardous waste. And the community just really had had enough in terms of being thought of as, you know, certainly second <laughs> second class or, or, or nothing like that at all, not being respected in any capacity. And so that's really where um, most people commonly associate the beginning of the environmental justice movement. And from there, Lots of other communities around the country just started mobilizing and organizing and saying, you know what, enough is enough. I don't know why my community has to be the one that has a landfill or an incinerator uh, or the port or anything like that. And why communities were being burdened, right, being burdened with environmental harms that really are affecting everyone. So in theory, right, the, the reason these environmental harms exist is because we all need to put our trash somewhere. We all need to burn something. We all need to log timber, right? All of that stuff. But these communities were the ones that were bearing the, the brunt of that. But of course, uh, if, uh, if we didn't have people we could just dump this toxic stuff onto, we might think twice about producing this stuff or produce it differently. So, I mean, it's... Yeah. It, it, it actually, I mean, having this escape route uh, from the point of view of the dominant uh, forces in society uh, is, is an easy way out in some ways. That's absolutely true. Yeah, if we actually are forced to think about where our trash is going and what it means to have a landfill uh, adjacent to your property, uh, maybe we wouldn't have so much trash, right? Maybe we wouldn't be so casual about throwing everything out. Maybe we would live in a more environmental uh, world where we're thinking about these things with, with more clarity and with more understanding. So absolutely. You say in, in your article, uh, the environmental justice can encompass many traditional civil rights fights, such as housing equalities, access to transportation, access to health care, uh, access to education, economic opportunities, as well as more traditional environmental justice issues, such as contaminated water, soil, and air. So this is a, a very broad conception of the environment you're working with, right? Yeah, it is. And I, and I think it's because, you know, environmental justice is not, it's, um, it's not in a vacuum, right? Or environmental injustice. It's not in a vacuum. And Oftentimes, communities that are suffering these environmental harms are also the communities that are experiencing lack of access to healthcare, lack of housing equality, lack of education opportunities, lack of economic opportunities, uh, lack of transportation, right, to get to and from all of those different um, areas where, where people might need services. And so to approach it in a way that is more holistic rather than this narrow issue of oh, what's the environmental harm, I think is beneficial for, for communities and beneficial for, for us to start really understanding the systems in which we live, right? As you said, if we're forced to think about our, uh, our trash use and our, our consumption, then maybe we'll actually do something a little bit more <laughs> radical about it. Um, and it's the same 
type of theory. If we are thinking about an environmental justice community, we also need to think about all of these other areas of, of the community's life where they're affected negatively because of either the environmental justice or maybe the housing segregation right policies of the past are why these environmental injustices are occurring in their community. And then from there, there's a lack of educational opportunities or a lack of really high quality public education. Um, and from there, a lack of access to healthcare. Um, and so it's really just uh, kind of like snowballs into all of these different issues. And these these EJ communities are most often affected by by all of these issues. As the uh, geographers say, a lot of these you know, class and racial uh, conflicts are lived out through space. <laughs> so, right. so, some neighborhoods uh, prosper and some neighborhoods are the recipients of our waste. Exactly. Now, the, you give an example in your article of Old Smokey. Uh, what is Old Smokey? Yeah, so Old Smokey refers to the nickname for a incinerator, for an incinerator that was located in the city of Miami in the neighborhood of uh, Coconut Grove, and then it drilled down even smaller um, into the geographic uh, space is the neighborhood of the West Grove. And the West Grove is still somewhat of a segregated community. It was segregated by law in the early 1900s. The community was primarily comprised of black Bahamians. Um, black Bahamians, as a, as a fact that a lot of people don't know, are really the founders of the city of Miami. They came over in the late 1800s and really lived together with the, the white settlers um, that were trying to figure out what to do with Miami. Um, and so they lived in somewhat of a of racial harmony kind of until the early 1900s when white settlers from north of us, but known as the South, came down to Miami and implemented Jim Crow segregation laws. And from there, the West Grove and an area of Coral Gables known as the East Gables were the segregated areas um, for, for part of the city of Miami. There's another area as well known as um, Overtown. But this West Grove and East Gables was a very small community, very tight knit, um, schools, churches, parks. Um, and in the middle of it was this incinerator, this very large giant incinerator that burned a lot of trash for the city of Miami. It operated for almost 50 years uh, from about the 1920s to 1970. It was only shut down because of prolonged litigation that was uh, originated by the city of Coral Gables uh, for context is a uh, much whiter, much more affluent community and, and city. And so they were sick and tired of having the incinerator spewing ash um, and soot all over their properties, their pools. Um, that's actually what's cited in a lot of the litigation article, the litigation filings. And so from there, the incinerator was eventually shut down and demolished, but no, no remediation was ever done. And that site was then converted into the city of Miami Fire Training College, where firefighters get trained, still adjacent to schools, parks, homes, uh, churches. And in about 20, I think 20, 2012, um, a whistleblower actually provided the clinic at the University of Miami with some information regarding contamination at the fire training college. And so from there, we did a lot of education for community members to figure out what was going on and what had gone on at that site. And eventually, the city decided that they would do a one-mile radius, like spot, spot location, environmental assessment, where they would test the soil at other locations to see, you know, how bad is what's going on at this, this old smoky site. And it just, I guess, so happens that one of the sites that they picked was called is a park called Blanche Park, which is in a more affluent, again, uh, wider community in Coconut Grove. And that park um, had the same type of contamination, but in some ways, even higher levels. Um, higher amounts of heavy metals, PCBs, and actually, if you dug not too far into the park, you found old trash. So you found like old um, Coca-Cola bottles that hadn't fully been incinerated. And so it was then <laughs> discovered that parks and quarries and some of these empty lots had been used to dump all this incinerator ash from the incinerator after it burns. You need to put the ash somewhere. And so they put it in what would become City of Miami Parks. So this incinerator did some 50 years worth of damage while it was operating, and then 50 years later, after it's closed, it's still doing damage. Exactly. So a century of damage from Old Smoky. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's so interesting really isn't the right word, but in some ways what's so tragic about this is that it 
in part really needed this white community of Coral Gables to sue the city and to get the incinerator shut down in order for it to actually be shut down. And then 50 years later, because this park, Blanche Park, was located in a wider neighborhood, and then eventually there were several other parks that were found to be contaminated also in uh, wider, more affluent neighborhoods, that really is what got a lot of the media attention um, for this issue. And so even 50 years later, right, we, we, <laughs> the collective, we needed to have this white community or more affluent community like up in arms in order for us to realize that this was an actual problem. And what, if any, remedies are there available under current law for this uh, sort of damage? Sure. So I will say that um, there is a there is pending litigation right now that I am not a part of, and so I I don't know exactly where it is um, right now in the court system or or what's exactly happening with it. But hypothetically and, and theoretically speaking, this issue is very similar to other historic environmental injustices where you've got an issue, right, that we all recognize is, wow, that's that's bad. <laughs> that shouldn't have happened. Or maybe most of us might recognize that. But then the issue comes down to what is the remedy, right? So clearly uh, a good one would be to start to let's clean it up. So let's make sure there's no more contamination, right? Let's do a thorough testing to uh, to see, is there actually no more contamination at all of these sites, at the property sites that are adjacent to the incinerator itself, right? Um, not just the parks, but people's own properties. And then if there is, we've got to clean it up and homeowners shouldn't be liable for that cleanup. And a lot of the time they are, and that's part of why they don't want to necessarily have their properties be tested, right? Because if you find out that there's contamination on your property, you're going to have to clean it up. And in order to get the city or whoever the perpetrator would be to clean it, you probably need to get some sort of lawsuit going. And that requires attorneys, right? That requires experts, that requires scientists. And so the remedies are vast in that there, in theory, could be a lot. But when you look at the actual environmental laws, there really aren't that many. And something that I talk about in the article is that, you know, environmental laws, one, they're taking into account usually like active ongoing issues. And certainly Old Smoky is an example of an ongoing issue. But it's a lot easier, right, when you've still got an incinerator spewing and you can see ash and you can see all of this. It's a lot harder when you have what's called legacy contamination, right, something that's been there for 50 years. And the other thing is that environmental laws don't really at all take into account social justice theories or social justice at all. They approach everything in a very clear-cut way of, oh, this is contaminated or, oh, this is in violation of its permit, right, without actually saying, well, what's actually happened to this community over the last 50 years, 100 years? And so the issue of, of what remedies exist is just, it's very troubling, <laughs> That a conventional remedy would be uh, would involve money, right? Uh, but how can you come up with a monetary figure for for something like this? Something so persistent, so pervasive, and so much a product of social injustice. Are there monetary remedies? Right, exactly. I think when you look at the at the environmental laws or even tort property laws, um, so things like trespass, right, or, or nuisance, or something that's occurred to my property that you did. There are damages calculations that that might exist in terms of how folks would be able to recover if it's based on property value loss, if it's based on the actual amount uh, of money it costs to, to clean up, right, the, the remediation effects, or if perhaps you could get some sort of some sort of emotional damage. But, you know, looking at the, t- the tort remedies is challenging as well. And so the one thing that doesn't do, right, all these options that we're kind of briefly talking about is it doesn't take into account really the mental anguish of living next to an incinerator or knowing that an incinerator was there and wondering if your property is contaminated or knowing that your property is contaminated and then having the fear and anxiety and concern as to whether you are sick or will become sick because of whatever contamination existed. Maybe you're, you're worried about your children, right? All of these concerns, I mean, these are the things that eat people up as they should um, to be to be anxious about this to not to not know what damage this has actually caused me my body my family and their health i'm speaking with the environmental lawyer Catherine Kamen. 
So applying a reparations uh, framework to this is, is interesting because you know, when we talk about the slavery uh, issue, reparations for slavery, to a lot of people it seems very abstract, very remote, something lost in history. Many white Americans were not here or their ancestors were not here when the injuries of slavery occurred. Uh, but in this case, there's something extremely specific and localized. Uh, and it, it's, it's a really um, helpful way to think about how reparations could be constructed in in this specific sense. So like, what what would a reparations framework bring to the uh, the issue of old smoky? Right. Yeah. So and I appreciate that because the whole the whole point right is is community healing. And I think that's sometimes what gets lost in the conversation about slavery reparations is we think about it so much as this like individual monetary payout. And that's not what reparations means necessarily. And it's it's certainly not what it has to mean. And so at the outset of any conversation where we're really truly thinking about community-based reparations, we have to really truly think about the community and what the community itself wants, right? And a community, as you said, is going to be a lot more localized. It's it's going to be probably smaller in terms of um, space, in terms of people who've, who've lived there, who still live there. And so it helps to first start with, well, what's actually happened here? What does the community itself actually want, right? What is it that they actually need to feel any sort of healing? Certainly, it should be an apology, right? It should be an acknowledgement of the issue. With so much environmental injustice, we don't even acknowledge that it's a problem, right? We just say, oh, well, you know, it's in that community because that community is zoned industrial. And, oh, it just so happens that this poor minority community lives there. And really, one, that's not usually the case. Usually the um, environmental harm comes in after the community uh, already lived there. And two, it just doesn't do anything to recognize the fact that this is bad, that this is affecting a community of people. And so starting with that acknowledgement, starting with the fact that this was bad, this is bad. But they're a community of people who are selected precisely for who they are. <laughs> it's really... Yeah. There's some yeah. degree of conscious uh, injury imposed. It's not just an accident of history. Absolutely. And, you know, it's sad, but a lot of people argue that that it, that's not the case, that it just so happened that this um, incinerator, it just so happens that this landfill is located in this community. Um, you know, you didn't have to move there, right? It's like a common argument that, that you still hear when it comes to environmental injustice. And that just totally negates our entire system, right? Everything we've already talked about in terms of lack of access to all of these different education, healthcare, all these different issues, right? And so starting at this baseline acknowledgement that, hey, this was really bad and this shouldn't have happened is is where the conversation needs to begin. And then moving into, well, how do we apologize in a meaningful way, right? How is it that we actually tell this community we are sorry and we don't want this to keep happening and we are going to listen to you and ask you what we can do to show you a meaningful apology? And because it's coming from a community, a community based system, it's not necessarily individual money payouts, right? It's probably something more like, oh, we would love to have our school renovated or we would love to um, have one, the properties remediated, right, that are contaminated, for example, or we'd love to have a new park, right? It's all these different things that exist in the world of what communities are typically lacking because we ignore them, not just for environmental justice purposes, but for a whole host of other social justice purposes. And so it puts the power back in the community to decide, well, what is it that can we really benefit from? And what is it that could really provide us a little bit of healing to feel like, oh, people actually listened to us and they understood that this was bad? It's funny, Adam, when you hear the people calling for an apology, you know, even for slavery or anything, my first reaction is, well, you know, talk is cheap. You could just say, I'm sorry. But it's clear that people have a great reluctance or difficulty saying those things. I mean, that seems to be symptomatic of something, like some ongoing guilt doesn't want to be admitted to or, you know, but even the inability to utter an apology seems to be significant. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think you're right. I think there's definitely an aspect of guilt. I think, you know, you can take the city of Miami as an example. When the incinerator was built, right, I mean, a lot of the people who worked for the city of Miami, who work for the city of Miami now certainly weren't there then. Um, and so there's this guilt, but also this distancing, right, that happens. So well, I, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't make this decision. But the fact is, that 
doesn't help us advance any sort of social justice in any capacity by not taking any sort of ownership over it and saying, you know what, this was really bad. And even if I didn't make that decision, I'm really sorry that this happened, right? What is it that we can do to move forward in a way that makes you whole, you being the community, and makes makes you feel seen, makes you feel recognized, right? Rather than, oh, I'm sorry, um, we'll clean up the remediation and like maybe it won't happen again, <laughs> right? There are different ways to, to apologize. And I think you're totally right that it's really hard for a lot of people to just actually apologize and let alone mean their apology. The kinds of reparations you're talking about here are, are a version of um, a restorative justice, right? Yes. It's wanting the perpetrator, right? Whether it's a chemical company, whether it's a municipality, it's wanting them to recognize that they've done something wrong and bringing the community into the fold and making the community be in charge of what it is that they need for their own healing um, and, and communicating that directly with the perpetrator, right? Saying, you know, you've done this and let's figure out how we can make our community have any sort of justice because for decades we haven't had anything that's even remotely close to it. Now, of course, there are thousands of old Smokies around the United States. You know, the, like the entire Mississippi River Delta is like a, a giant version of old Smoky, right? So we're talking about something that would be, you know, if, if fully um, carried out, would be quite a large-scale transformation of our, of our justice system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, when I wrote the article, a lot of it comes from this hyper-localized issue, right? Thinking about it from the standpoint of a community that's very small, that's been wronged by a municipality in this case. And, and seeing, you know, the municipality should bear some responsibility for what's gone on. Um, and so when we talk about kind of like implementing this at a, at a state level or a federal level, it obviously gets a little bit murkier. But there I think there are ways where at a federal level, for example, some money could be set aside, right, for communities to access, excuse me, for, for municipalities or communities to access in order to carry out their hyper-local community-based reparations program. And uh, how would you use this kind of framework to think about uh, the Flint water crisis? I mean, Flint is, is such a terrible, such a terrible example of, of ongoing environmental injustice, right? Of how we as a society, as a country, seem to not really have learned anything when it comes to social justice and greed and corruption and treating humans with decency. And so... I, you know, again, there's there's a lot of existing litigation that is out there in regards to Flint. I, I think that a community-based reparations framework could be used in conjunction with with litigation to perhaps put the community a little bit more front and center of their their path to some form of justice or some sort of healing. Medical monitoring and health-based programs are absolutely essential for folks in Flint. And I know that's part of, I think, what some of the litigation is about, or at least what some of the remedies are, are about or asking for. But things, things like that, where we're actually going to say, you know, your medical care is totally covered, right? For the rest of your life, for these children who have been so severely impacted, who will continue to be so severely impacted for the rest of their lives to understand, you know what, at the very least, let's pay for medical care, right? Let's make sure that these folks have access to the best medical care that exists, to trainings for the, for learning about what they should be expecting, what they shouldn't, what they should know is, is potential to come when it comes to these health effects. I think it's definitely possible to have a community-based reparations program in conjunction with the litigation that exists. Certainly, it's challenging, I think, to have those two courses at the same time. But it's just it's just so tragic what, what has happened in Flint. That's really, it's so tragic. And finally, um, this um, framework that you're proposing is, you say in, in the article, that it's a way to transform uh, our thinking about reparations from backward looking to forward looking, right? Right, yeah. You know, and I, I think, again, that's part of the problem, right, with where people get so um, flustered when it comes to even the word reparations is, oh, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to have to pay anything, right, for, for what happened so many years ago, so many decades ago. But the problem is that unless we actually 
take the time, take the resources to help heal communities that have suffered something that might have happened in the past, those communities are continuing to suffer. They won't be able to heal, right? They won't be able to grow the way that other communities that haven't suffered these these environmental injustices will be able to grow and prosper. And so it is in some ways backward looking if the harm occurred, you know, decades ago. But it is very much forward looking in how can we bring these communities into the fold, make them in control of their community, right? Let them have the power to speak to perpetrators, to speak to municipalities um, and to speak to officials who have done nothing for them except likely harm them. And by doing that, we let the community itself move forward, right? They're able to think about things differently. They're able to get resources that they maybe otherwise we're never going to have. And so the continued legacy of all of these environmental injustices is just that. It's a legacy and it it's truly continuing, especially when it comes to health effects and especially when it comes to ongoing siting issues, right? If a community is still, um, you know, half zoned industrial, right? They might get another landfill. They might get another incinerator or any other sort of environmental harm. And so it's, it is forward looking in the sense that there's no way that we can actually get communities to heal, even in the smallest sense, without looking towards the future. I was Catherine Kamen, a lawyer with Earth Justice based in Miami. She was speaking for herself and not the organization. Let's go out with this, some of Simulation, another cut from Ellen Aline's hot off the digital presses album, Alientronic. Till next week, bye. <laughs>